Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Benjamin Kitchings of the History Voyager. I'm here with Mark Buffard of the What If History podcast, and we are going to talk about the Louisiana Purchase. And I am looking forward to this conversation very much. Hey, Ben. How are you doing today? Oh, fine, fine. Good. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, I'm happy to have you. I uh, studied the Louisiana Purchase uh, some years ago in school, um, and there's a lot of ins and outs to it. So why don't we get rocking and rolling? Sure. So on our on What If World History, we explore different significant historical events, and we create diaries of some of the key players so people can kind of get a firsthand experience. And then the one thing we do is we create an alternative timeline. So we kind of make things different and say, you know, what could that new history look like? And then we kind of explore that. So uh, the Louisiana Purchase, admittedly, was something I didn't know a lot about. You know, everybody, I think, is grow, grows up in high school history class, and they kind of learn the the ins and outs of it just from a very top level. But it, it's really interesting because the story of the Louisiana Purchase is one of international intrigue, high stakes diplomatic gambles, and ultimately it's pure American luck. And that's what's so cool about it when I learned about it to dive into it for our uh, Louisiana Purchase podcast. Mm -hmm. So the story kind of kicks off in uh, the Mississippi River Basin, uh, Robert Cavalier de La Salle, uh, stands on the mouth of the Mississippi in 1682. He puts down a cross in front of a confused audience of Native Americans, and he says, I, I claim this area for Louis the Louis the Fourteenth, and he names it Louisiana. And the 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 the, uh, the French explore it, the Spanish explore it, um, and they, they really get to learn the rivers, the Native American populations, and they're actually very successful at establishing trade, you know, in the area. And it leads to the founding of New Orleans by Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne in 1718. And so very quickly, even though it's got a population of only about 8,000, New Orleans at the bottom of the Mississippi River where it meets the Gulf of Mexico becomes this really important North American port. And um, that's kind of where the story kicks off. Yeah, um, I think I talked a little bit about it on a previous podcast, uh, New Orleans. And if memory serves, the, the whole, the reason the land grant was able to take place was a little bit, um, I guess you'd want to say, if you were a proper historian, I guess you'd say um, atypical. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, the guy, the, he was some person who was um, probably mentally ill, and he basically he floated down the Mississippi River in a canoe or something, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and he was a trader, and he ended up in the area that would become New Orleans, and he decided, uh, <laughs> you know, even with all of his issues, that this is where he wants to build a town. Right. And that's pretty much what happened, basically. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So Jefferson um, Jefferson got involved because I think Napoleon realized he couldn't defend it or something to that effect? So, or? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that, um, that's a really cool part of the story that we'll, we'll kind of get to because there's, there's a couple of really interesting things that happened before. So, you know, okay. when, when the historians have a really good viewpoint on, on the Louisiana territory, they say that it was passed around European royalty on a whim. So you get La Salle, de La Salle claims it for Louis the 14th, Louis the 15th gives it to his bourbon cousin, um, I think it was Charles the third in 1762. Okay. So we're leading up to the, that 1801 where Jefferson becomes president. So Louis, the Louis, the 15th gives it to Charles the third. And then Napoleon comes on the scene in, in the late 18th century. 
And he, he spends 1799, 1800, 1801, just kind of slowly turning the, the, the bourbons in Spain, the, the monarchy, into thinking that the, the the place was worthless and they should just give it up. And he says, you know, we're Christian, you're Christian, we'll we'll take good care of it, and we promise never ever it will once you give it to us, it will never change hands. And Napoleon makes that makes makes that promise. And uh they 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 kind of and it becomes one of Europe's worst kept secrets that Napoleon is is trying to get a hold of the Louisiana attorney back from, from Spain. And it, and he's doing all this on the international level and he's using his foreign minister, uh, Talleyrand to do it. And then, um, the British actually tell Jefferson when he's elected in 1801, one of the first things he hears about as president is the British ambassador in the U S telling him, Hey, this is what these guys are doing. And it really starts to become, it builds up into one of the biggest crises since the American revolution, because right about here in the early 1800s, the governor uh, of the, um, the Louisiana territory who was Spanish just arbitrarily cuts off all the U S access to the wharfs of new Orleans. And this is huge because, you know, even though there's not a big U S pop, a U S citizen population in this area, there's still lots of settlers um, even the people who are using the Ohio and Tennessee rivers are still floating their stuff down the Mississippi to sell it, you know, outside because it's still easier than than taking it to the East Coast ports. So this becomes a, a, a huge issue for the young country because it's a revenue issue. It's a diplomatic issue. You know, at this point, um, the U.S. won its territories from England, the 13 territories in it, and it got a little bit more land. Um, beyond that, Ohio, Illinois, Mississippi, Tennessee, Wisconsin, those are all, they weren't states yet, but that land was added to the U.S. But the U.S. was also sharing with Spain, with France, with Native American populations. So it was really a minority landholder. So, and, and it kind of came to a head with this New Orleans getting cut off for them. Um, so it, it became a big diplomatic issue. And this is where uh, a really interesting character named Robert Livingston joins the story. Uh, are you familiar with him? Cause I had not known about him at all. Is he the Livingston as in Dr. Livingston? I presume, <laughs> That's the or? first thing I thought. No, he's so Robert Livingston is the European ambassador for the U S. Um, and he was, he was actually part of the committee of five with Jefferson and Monroe who wrote the declaration of independence. And as chancellor of New York early in his career, he, he was the one who's, who gave uh, George Washington his oath of office. So he was kind of this key figure in, in history and it'll actually become much more important in a, in a few minutes. Um, and, and no one ever knows about him. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting to bring him up. So he's, he's the ambassador in, in, in Europe and Jefferson charged him with trying to thwart this deal where Spain transfers land back to, to France. And, the only card Livingston really has to play is he kind of tells Napoleon, look, um, if this is how France is going to act in North America, then maybe it's time for the U S to improve our diplomatic relations with England. And this was a big deal. This was kind of a, 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 a veiled threat that uh, right at Napoleon, because, you know, at this time there was a two year truce between France and England um, for one of their ongoing wars and people kind of expected that truce kind of like halftime at a football game. They they knew that once that, that clock is up on the two-year truce, the fighting would resume. So, um, you know, the, the fact that the U.S. was kind of offering to improve relations with with um, with England was was a was a pretty big threat. OK. OK. So. So um, the other thing that. Uh, you, you know, throughout this whole story, the one thing you kind of learn about Thomas Jefferson is he had a vision for where the U.S. was be, where the U.S. would go, and he viewed it as a coast to coast. Again, even though they're a small landowner, he was looking that far ahead to say the U.S. as a country will be will include the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico because right now they didn't have access to that. Um, he he just saw. The, yeah. the Louisiana Purchase is a piece of that. 
That's Let me right. ask you a question. Sure. And this is, and they always say not to ask questions that you don't know the answer to. But <laughs> now, when I did my years ago, I wrote a paper literally in high school about the Louisiana Purchase. Okay. And of course, you know, I studied it some in college. Um, you can't study American history and not study the Louisiana Purchase. That's just how it is. Um, but in high school, I, I distinctly remember reading that they were really fuzzy on where, on how far it went. Yeah, they, it, far, it, yeah. even after the purchase, it took um, a number of years and different treaties and negotiations before they established, you know, where the 49th parallel that basically will end up marking Canada, you know, what rivers are actually part of the deal, you know, included the Colorado and the Mississippi. And it was very undefined for a number of years. It occurs to me, it just, this just occurred to me because you're an American, I'm an American. So we think of this as an American, we think of this through an American lens. Yeah. Um, But I have listeners all over the planet. So it occurs to me that we ought to, in an auditory way, we ought to, okay, if you imagine the Louisiana Purchase is something that basically encompasses pretty much geographically, let's try and situate it. Yeah. Um, well, think just essentially think of it as the American Midwest. I mean, so you're talking, you know, it's 828,000 square miles. It's the largest real estate transaction in world history. But I mean... Geographically speaking, it's like buying um, France, Spain, and England all at once. Well, also, uh, was Oregon at that time, was that part of the Louisiana Purchase, or did that just sort of happen? No, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, kind of that Pacific Northwest, they're actually added in the 1846 with a treaty with England. Because because. Lewis and Clark, right? They they ended up in Oregon. They did, and, correct. And the story of Lewis and Clark is is actually kind of an important part of the post purchase history. Oh, I, I didn't yeah. know this, but but I, I didn't skip ahead. I, no, no, no. It's it's fine because <laughs> I didn't I didn't realize this for even before he was president. Um, as uh, I th- you know, in whatever role Jefferson had before that. He was trying to get the territory explored because, you know, knowledge is power. You know, what trade? What tribes will trade or attack with you? Right? What rivers are navigable? Um, you know, the, the Great Lakes. So all all of these things were were really unknown in the the continental United States. You know, um, the the ter- Ohio hadn't been founded yet. Right? Um, Illinois, India. These are all territories that the U.S. had rights to. But we're really Native American lands at this point. And the U.S. had very little knowledge about their own piece of the land they got for, during the Revolutionary War. And certainly they didn't had no idea what they were buying for the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and and hmm. Jefferson had a, tried to get um, Lewis and Clark to explore the area for years before he was president. But um, just it just never got off the ground. Mm-hmm. And... So, okay, for for those of us who are kind of light on our Louisiana Purchase sure. timeline, okay, so the Louisiana Purchase happened what year, essentially? So Jefferson comes on board in 1801. In okay. 1802, they cut off New Orleans to U.S. trade. Um, about 1802... Wait, pause. Who Who is they? Uh, I'm sorry, for, uh, the Spanish governor in New Orleans... Okay, uh, is the one. Point, who, yeah. yeah, so I'm sorry. New Orleans at this point was a Spanish thing. Yes, it okay. was. It was a Spanish town. Right. Again, only a population of eight thousand, but it was one of the most important port cities in in the entire continent of North America. It yeah. traded with the Caribbean. It traded with the South American colonies, which were Spanish. Uh, it traded over into what would be Mexico as well. Um, so it, it was a, it was a very important piece of the of the trade puzzle. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, so I just eight, wanted to hammer yeah, no, no, the timeline. 
Sure. So 1802 uh, is when they kind of cut off. Um, and uh, Livingston in France is getting the runaround by Talleyrand at this po- point. He's trying to kill the deal. Um, Livingston actually at Jefferson's uh, at Jefferson's direction, you know, he made a veiled threat before. He actually made a, a an overt threat to Napoleon, which in most cases would lead you either invaded or defeated. But the U.S. had the benefit of being all the way across the ocean and, and it being a huge country. They they couldn't just walk in there and invade the U.S. But but Livingston said, look, if you bring your force over here, you'll die like the British. You're going to you're going to travel hostile lands in an immense area with a hostile population. You saw what happened to the British. You come here with your army and you'll see what happens. And it was <laughs> it was really interesting that here Jefferson, um, new on the job, relatively speaking, as third president, is is threatening, you know, the first consul of France, the the mighty conqueror Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, but yeah. he had a point. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, so Je- Jefferson was actually pretty shrewd. You know, there he's got some faults as a as a person, but as a kind of a, a international leader um, on the, on the world stage, he's actually pretty shrewd. He, he knew that the, the France couldn't invade the U S um, and he knew that he had the benefit of space and time to kind of let the U S develop. Uh, but, you know, he was backed into a corner um, which is why he made the threats um, because of what Spain did in um, shutting off new Orleans. So he actually, even though Livingston was doing what he should be doing, um, trying to work with France, threatening, cajoling when he when he needed to, um, Jefferson thought, hey, I, I'd better set over some more brains to sit at the table. So he sent over James Monroe, who was his secretary of state and who would later become president. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, we, th- we think of these great leaders um, – you know, being very important, but they weren't necessarily the richest people around. James Monroe actually had to sell his furniture in China to pay for the trip to France. So he heads out um, and in, in late 1802, and there's all this diplomatic relations going around. And uh, Napoleon's pre- preparing for an invasion of England um, at the end of that two-year truce. But one of the things he has to deal with is a uprising in Santo Domingo, which will become Haiti. And again, this is where it's really interesting because you have European colonialism, American imperialism, and Native American ancestry all playing in the background of this essentially becomes a a land transaction. So um, one of the most important people to this story about the Louisiana Purchase is um, you know a man by the name of who again we we never hear about, uh, but he's a huge figure in U.S. history, and that's Francois Dominique Toussaint Louverture, and he led a, a slave and native uprising in Santo Domingo, and basically took over the island and was ruling as its governor. Um, and you know here's here's an African man who was once a slave who became the governor of, of this area. And, you know, France viewed Santa Domingo as its most important uh, property. They, when, when France decided to take over North America, they viewed it as kind of their Australia. They were going to send um, derelicts, convicts, debtors. That's who they were going to populate North or North America with. They were going to use it like Australia did. And they wanted New Orleans to kind of serve as the breadbasket for Santa Domingo because Santa Domingo, they sent mm-hmm. 700 ships a year of sugar, coffee, indigo, cotton, and coca to the France. So it, it was their most valuable asset. So right before James Monroe gets there to negotiate with, with Napoleon, he sends out a troop of 40,000 to put down the uprising. And then, you know, after they make this quick stop, they'll go on to New Orleans and 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 France will be a colonial empire in North America. But <laughs> it, it things didn't go quite that way. Again, Jefferson gambled uh, in his threats to Napoleon that this expeditionary force would never make it to the U.S. 
he planned, he kind of thought that they would get bogged down in Santa Domingo and he ends up being uncannily right. Um, General Leclerc, excuse me, General Leclerc is the expeditionary force of commander of 40,000 men. They stop off in Santa Domingo and he, he befriends Toussaint and, you know, looks like he's going to support him and as being governor and as running the territory. And then all of a sudden in a, in a, late night meeting, he arrests them and ships them off to Europe. Well, that ended up being from the U S perspective, the, the most important event because the entire population of 500,000 turns on him and his troops of 40,000 and basically annihilate them through battles, malaria, lever or yellow fever. They lose 60,000 casualties. Um, and, and, and then it became obvious there was no French force that was going to be come to um, to to the U.S. and and when James Monroe gets to France in late eighteen oh two, early eighteen oh three, the situation is completely changed because he was he was sent there with Jefferson with uh with the direction is spend nine million dollars and buy New Orleans, the rest of the territory we can worry about. We'll you know, his plan was to slowly people it, as he called. So put settlers out there and kind of slowly take over the land. But if they got New Orleans, then they got the revenue and the port access that they that they really wanted. And that, I mean, that was a strategy. The, I mean, the British used that mm-hmm. strategy. I mean, the thing, the thing that um, that we in the 21st century, or even we in the, you know, late 20th century or whatever. Um, miss is how intelligent Jefferson was and how people you might think that's luck that they uh that there not to give it away but there was a hurricane that that prevented uh Napoleon uh from getting to Frank um getting to uh, New Orleans right but Jefferson was a meteorologist essentially yeah. Right. He was a meteorologist. He also knew a lot about tropical diseases and swamps and that kind of thing. And I wonder, I mean, it goes down in the history books as luck, right? Officially, the official score, to use a baseball term, uh, scores it as luck. Yeah. But I wonder how much luck it really was because he knew. You know, by you know, look, you're doing this during hurricane season. There's gonna be a hurricane that comes around. You know, also Nordic Europeans plus heat plus mosquitoes plus this plus that, um, plus armed armed rebellion in Haiti, um, Santo Domingo, Santo Domingo. I'm sorry. Um, you know, what are the chances that? these people are going to make it out of Haiti and something for my uh, United States listeners uh, that don't live in the uh, American South or a swamp land. I lived in a swamp. Okay. I used to live in a swamp. I understand how hot a swamp can get and how, even in the 21st century. Okay how it can become unbearable if you're not used to it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And and keep in mind, the French uniform was these <laughs> thick woolen coats and trousers and thick leather boots. Yeah. I mean, you know, they probably they probably lost more people to heat stroke than they did to bullets. I mean, you know, um, even in the 21st century, there's a mold in, in – uh, the swamp in Georgia that can cause infection in people if you're not yeah. used to it. So totally. I mean, what well, you bring up two really good points, which is Jefferson was a voracious consumer of information. His, his, the maps he kept at his mansion in Monticello were generally considered better than the maps that were available to him, you know, as president in the library of Congress His his library is, you know, renowned for the breadth of, topics it covers. So absolutely he knew um, better than Napoleon or probably even General Leclerc what um, hardships that the French would face down there. I I mean, the interesting thing 
this is what I remember, not to interrupt, this is what I remember about New Orleans from the French perspective, right? Was that there were not cartographers in France. There were not enough cartographers to even map, um, you know, the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah. I remember reading the letters that the 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 head I don't know the gov- I don't know what you call it but the governor or whatever of New Orleans would send back to France you know like mm-hmm. hey send us some some cartographers and they were like hey the problem with that is kid we don't have enough yeah <laughs> like I remember well, that go ahead oh I was going to say well you mentioned Lewis and Clark I mean that's the first time uh it the whole the territory was truly mapped um, again, yeah. France and England and Spain had explored it and, you know, they kind of knew their way around, but, you know, there wasn't a substantive professional cartography of, of the land. And that's what Lewis and Clark delivered, you know, a few years later. They didn't even have, I mean, they didn't even have 15 cartographers yeah. in France. And the thing you also have to remember is when we talk about a map, okay, most people of an age, okay, are going to think about a road map or like you get from Rand McNally or maybe a Google map map mm-hmm. or a Waze map or something. These are not the maps we're talking about. We're talking about maps. Some of these maps were seen more as a work of art. Yeah. Than say, you know, a map of how to get from A to B. I remember one cute little story about the Paris was Paris. Okay. In the new, in the known world, Paris, Paris, France, in the known world during the French revolution did not have a map of Paris. Hmm. There was not a complete map of the city of Paris and that the revolutionaries used that to their great advantage. They use that little statistic to their great advantage. <laughs> That's pretty so, interesting. Yeah. 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 And actually when, because before the French revolution, they would say they, who's they, the people who knew something was going to happen in Paris would say to the King, Hey, we need, Hey, we need to have a map of Paris. Right. Yeah. And the King would say, yes, but it wouldn't be pretty or it wouldn't be beautiful or whatever the, the famous ominous thing that he said. Right. Which even then, his advisors knew, okay, we're screwed. Like, wow, he's out of touch. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yep, absolutely. I mean, so, but I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted no, to no, write that context. Was, no, that, that, that's actually pretty important because, you know, even, and we'll get to the post-purchase shortly, but they, they really didn't know what they were buying. And, and ultimately what they bought were the rights to the land because, you know, you had 5 million native Americans who occupied the land and, and that actually becomes Jefferson's probably the biggest mark on him is how he treated those native American populations after he purchased. But, you know, right now Madison rolls into France um, and, you know, from the time he left to the time he arrives, the situation is completely different. So, you know, Jefferson had told him that the words ringing in his ears were that the, the, the future of this republic depends on your success. So that's the pressure Monroe and Livingston are under. So they, they, um, it's early 1803, and, and Napoleon basically says, um, I, I, I can't hold on to this. We, we don't have any army to occupy it. We don't have any administrators to run it. So um, I think it's time, time to give it up. And so, you know, he says, I renounce Louisiana. It is not only New Orleans that I will cede. It is a whole colony without reservation. I know the price of what I abandoned. I renounce it with the greatest regret. And his, 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 um, his advisors have said, well, if you sell this to the U.S., you're basically setting them up to be a, a world empire. And he said, he said, well, maybe in two or three centuries, but my foresight doesn't embrace such remote fears. So, you know, he, he, if he was selling this to England, that's one thing, but he didn't really view the U S as that of an important of a, of a country. So that's one of the reasons he felt comfortable making the deal. So, you know, all of a sudden, um, Talleyrand, the French foreign minister springs on 
uh, Livingston and, and Jefferson or Livingston and Monroe said, Hey, how about instead of new Orleans for 9 million, we sell you everything for 15 million. And, you know, Jefferson wasn't sure if he had the, uh, the constitutional authority to do it. Uh, and quite frankly, they were shocked because this was Napoleon's idea, not theirs, but they knew it was a deal they could not pass up. And so yeah, they, think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I think it's important now to interject uh, two points, right? The first point is that historian folks like you and I um, understand that maybe you didn't know this, but once the steam engine proliferated into the world, okay, in other words, once you created the Industrial Revolution, okay, you create a mindset that makes it so that it's really hard for you and I to understand what Talleyrand was thinking. Yeah. Okay. Because we live in a different universe than Talleyrand did. Okay. So it's totally understandable because Talleyrand was on the other side of the industrial revolution. Yeah. So he didn't know, Oh God, the steam engine's going to come along and that's going to upset the apple cart of the world. Okay. Number one, number two, when you have everything on the gold standard or whatever they called it at the time, $7 million or 15 and $7 million is still a lot of money. All right. Sure. In the day and age of you can pay a shortstop or whatever, like you can pay, you can have a make a wish program. No, no offense intended with it, with a shortstop that doesn't hit anything. It doesn't field <laughs> for 15 million. Yeah. We in the 21st century don't understand, you know, $15 million is a whole lot of money under the gold standard is what I'm trying to say. So, you know. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and actually, the only reason the, the U.S. could even afford it is a British uh, a British company called Bering and Company Bank uh, basically agreed to underwrite the purchase at 6% interest. So. Uh, they had to rely on a British bank to make the purchase, which I think is kind of ironic and funny. Yeah. So, um, so they're they're negotiating with with Napoleon. He kind of agrees to make this deal because he needs to raise money for you know the invasion of England, and this is where we get to the what I think is the ultimate flex story. Um, Napoleon's laying in his tub. It's sprinkled with cologne and his two brothers come running in and they accuse him of being impetuous. Now, one of the brothers was actually paid $100,000 by England to block this deal. But um, they, they, they tell Napoleon, say, look, we're going to lead the opposition to you and this deal in the French parliament. Na Napoleon stands up naked in the tub and he tells them, you will have no need to lead the opposition for I repeat, there will be no debate. For the project has been conceived by me, negotiated by me, and shall be ratified and executed by me alone. Do you comprehend me? <laughs> and so he basically shut down any sort of uh, debate or um, you know negativity towards the deal just by being Napoleon alone. And he did it standing naked in his tub, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> um, so... So the purchase um, goes through, but okay. it actually doesn't reach. It goes through in um, in April, uh, late May of 1803, but news of it doesn't reach the U.S. until fortuitously July 3rd. So they they get this news that we bought, you know, essentially the entire Midwest the day before the Fourth of July, and and just the entire country goes nuts because everybody's excited. Um, obviously, other than the Native Americans who we're going to feel the brunt of this, but for the young country, it's, it's the, one of the momentous events, you know, they say in addition to the declaration of independence and the constitution, you know, this is one of the three things that created the modern United States. Well, I, I would totally agree with that. I mean, yeah. maybe I'm stealing your thunder here, but we would be <laughs> a very, vastly different country if we stopped on the right hand side of the Mississippi. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. so the news, you know, the news hits, everybody's excited, 
But you know what's interesting is Jefferson immediately started looking towards the Pacific. He's like, okay, keep in mind, he thought the Mississippi was the spine of the back that would hold this country together. So once he gets the Midwest, now he's looking for you know the rest of the uh, continent. And he starts laying the groundwork. And what he had viewed is that over the course of three to four generations, there would be this big migration of settlers and frontiersmen across, you know, the, the Louisiana territory and then in, then into the Spanish territory, which included Texas and Arizona, California, English territory, which included Washington, Oregon, that these settlers would basically spread out across the continent and, and slowly take over over the course of generations, the, these states. And because of what they did, um, with Louisiana territory, instead of this like slowly wave of ebbing its way across, it became the tsunami. Um, now mm. they own the rights to this land and there's a lot of issues that come with that, but you know, now they can move settlers into there. And, you know, Spain was this like paper tiger, this monarchy it was bankrupt, you know, at the, at mm. this time it owned, you know, the, all of the West's Mexico, the area that would be Texas, South America, like they had this huge land holdings, but they had no army or Navy to defend it. And, you know, other than having really good governors, they really couldn't manage that. So they, over the next, you know, 30, 40 years, they lose, um, they lose Texas uh, in 1845. Um, Obviously Mexico declares independence and Texas declares independence from Mexico. Um, the, the entire California area, the, that West, you know, they, they lose that when they defeat Mexico. And then in 1846, they have the treaty that brings in Washington and Oregon. So from 1803 to, you know, 1845, 1846, we basically add the rest of the U- United States as we know it today, which is a coast to coast. So this kicks off a, a huge flurry of events over the course of the next couple of decades that, that transforms the U S and into what we know today. Without putting you, I'm going to put you on the spot. A sure. Bit, Cause something just occurred to me, like something sure. just hit me over the head. Right. What if, and I'm just saying, cause I know this couldn't have happened, but you know how, I don't know if you know this, but, the Muslims in Spain and the Jewish population in Spain was, was very scientifically literate and, and very well-educated by any standard, uh, modern or medieval or whatever. What if they had stuck around in Spain? What, so I'm asking, like, what if Isabella and Ferdinand had somehow incorporated these people into the intelligentsia in Spain, would that have made a more dynamic empire? And would that have made Spain a more lasting empire? I think certainly so. I mean, you know, lack of thinking seems to be, it seems, you know, and and lack of thinking and prevalence of inbreeding seems to be the downfall of most of these monarchies. I mean, I'm just saying, yeah, huge empire. Well, they didn't understand what they have. I mean, you know, I mentioned that the Louisiana territory was passed around on a whim because they essentially viewed it as having no value. Even though when you look at ultimately that the United States gets these mineral rights to, to gold and silver and all these other minerals, they get huge tracts of old growth lumber. And basically mm-hmm. they get the, 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 the best farmland that the world has ever known. And, you know, there's a, a story in John Ellis that basically says that the farming sets up America to be um, agrarian independent in the 18th century and an agrarian superpower in the in the 19th century, in the 20th mm-hmm. century. So mm-hmm. this just the just acquiring that farmland alone of the Midwest yeah. creates all of this value for the U.S. And, and you know, going back to your 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 thing about the Spanish monarchy. Had they had some thinking, I'm sure people understood the value, but that just never trickled up to the monarchy in a way that was either believed or even listened to. So, I mean, at some point, I forget when, um, at some point there was a man during the minority of a, of a French king who, whose title I forget, whose number I forget, 
there was a man who ran France for a while who was a who was a smart fella, right? He was a really smart fella who understood that New Orleans was a big deal. Uh, it was a really big deal because he basically prevented the Pope from excommunicating all these people that that had. Uh, or he didn't prevent it, the Pope. What he did was he said, "Well, I'm not going to kill these people who, who basically fornicated, as he said, with the slaves and the and the native girls, right? Because mm-hmm. they're actually good. Um, you know, they were sea captains and engineers and that kind of thing. Sure, right? So he wasn't just going to kill his professional class just because the Pope said." I was, I was right. not familiar with that story. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've studied about the formation of Louis, of New Orleans, but I, I know scandalously little about the Louisiana Purchase itself. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, diving into it, it, it was it was really interesting to see all of these levels of intrigue and gamble and luck mm. that, that played a part into uh, essentially a real estate transaction. No, it it sounds like a little bit of luck and a little, you know, we were very fortunate that Jefferson was a genius and we were very fortunate that he was right in that hurricane season would be upon them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, and that kind of thing. Um, so what's your position? Like, what if what had happened or? So in our in our what if scenario, we imagined a expeditionary force that doesn't take a sidestep into Santo Domingo and instead heads right for the U.S. And mm. we imagine uh, a young general by the name of Andrew Jackson, Old Hickory, uh, mm. fighting them in a series of running battles uh, mm. in uh, throughout the uh, Louisiana Territory and what is now Arkansas. Mississippi and and ultimately defeating them in the Battle of Crooked Woods in the swamps of uh, Mississippi. Okay, and, ultimately defeating the French. Ultimately, French. yes, defeating the French because you know the U.S. even so one of the things that happened uh, right before the Louisiana Purchase is the United States Army was founded because they realized, look, we need a professional standing army of not just militias but of of soldiers. And so, you know, Old Hickory would be leading a, a force of 40, 50,000 uh, army soldiers, uh, which had been created at that time, uh, but not yet trained. And, you know, he could also pull from state militias as well. So he would not be short of fresh troops to use against the, uh, the French, who, by the, by the way, did have better weapons. But, you know, when you're fighting in the, as you mentioned, the swamps and everything, uh, the U.S., which are probably dressed more like frontiersmen than than French soldiers, would would have advantage in both knowing the terrain, being dressed for the terrain, and you know fighting on their terms and not uh, on the terms of what the French would want, which would be you know traditional soldiers in line marching towards each other, rows of muskets. You know, the just like they fought the um, the uh, British, it would be much more guerrilla warfare, midnight raids, and supply chain attacks. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. so in our what if scenario, uh, Jefferson ultimately does get Louisiana territory, but without having to buy it, he just kind of gets it in the treaty after the governor of uh, um, the Louisiana territory, who, by the way, was planning a, a war with the U.S. secretly um, until Napoleon told him to sell it instead. But he ends up signing the treaty that turns it over to the U.S. And then the U.S. uses that, the money it has, to buy the territory from Spain uh, much sooner than the 1848 and all those other years. Uh, And so much quickly, much more quickly, the U.S. is coast to coast with the same price that it would pay for New Orleans and Louisiana territory, all because of a a U.S. Army uh, that was ready to fight on their home turf. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you could even, I mean, would you include Cuba in that price or not? 
<laughs> that's a good question. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I, yeah. I, I've read Michener's book on the Caribbean, but I, I, I'm not that familiar with Cuba's history. I, I would, would that be an appropriate um, uh, purchase as part of that? I, well, they were part of the Spanish empire. Yeah. Um, and right up until uh, Castro, they, uh, at least the Cuban elite, right, had very close ties to the U.S., right? Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I think it would, would have impacted American history somewhat, obviously. But I don't know what that impact would be, and I don't know that it would be very, uh, not that it wouldn't be significant, but that you, I, essentially, I don't know what Cuba being a U.S. territory would do to the history of the of Yeah, a, that's interesting. Well, obviously, at the time, you know, those yeah. Caribbean islands and those Caribbean territories, the Bahamas, Cuba, all of that, I mean, they were huge, essentially, um, plantation islands that were run with slave labor, just like, you know, much of the American South was. So they certainly would know how to run those um, as, as bad as slavery and, and plantation life is morally speaking, but they would know um, from an administration standpoint, how to run those. But, you know, ultimately those, those populations went on their own, uh, created their own, you know, destinies and futures by rebelling against whomever did manage them. So, even if even if the U.S. did own Cuba, I, I would think that would be relatively short lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. But is it? it I love you know. What if is the whole yeah thing of our podcast? So I, I like I like what if scenarios. That's very interesting. I mean. It's it's fascinating. I mean, it's really interesting when you look at history and you think, you know, if we're talking about like if this had happened or like what if, what if, for example, somebody at a, at a flight school in Minnesota had asked questions of this man who did not want to learn how to land a plane. Yeah. Right. Would 9-11 have taken place? And if 9-11 didn't take place, how would our country be different today? Right. And, you know, or what, what if, uh, you know, I, I, I love, I love the exercise. And, and again, it's just where my passion lies, learning history and then making little tweaks. Like we just did an episode on Attila the Hun and said, well, okay, well, how many more million people would die if he lived through his wedding night? You know, he he was planning on invading, you know, the Roman Empire, uh, the the Eastern Roman Empire, and you know, so we we imagine, you know, how many more million people would die? Or we did um, we did an episode on what if the July twentieth plot to assassinate Hitler Hitler had succeeded? You know, we said that probably would have saved ten million lives and ended the war eight months earlier, ten months yeah. earlier. So or, I I love the idea of of what if scenarios and just kind of tweaking events. Well, here's a what if scenario that I would run into, you know, while I was recording the Spanish flu podcast um, that I did. What if um, there was a there was a man named Harry Underdown? There was a young boy named Harry Underdown. He was like 19, 18 years old, something like that. He's remarkable in that he unwittingly killed more people than anything else on the planet because of a biological condition in his body that allowed the virus, the Spanish flu virus to basically mutate. Okay. So what if Harry Underdown had stayed home mm-hmm. instead of what if he'd gotten sick and then stayed home instead of going back to Europe? What if, um, what if the doctor in Kansas who uncovered the Spanish flu what if he what if some of those letters had gotten to a to a washington that was much more uh in view of an expansive role of the of the federal government in terms of disease 
prevention and disease mm-hmm. control. It, there's all kinds of things you could, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's a fact, you know, it, it helps to know the history so that you can explore alternative timelines. But I love, I love yeah. the exercise of it because it just, it allows you to understand the structure of what happened, but just kind of let creativity explore different outcomes. And then, you know, that also helps you think in a new way about things that are happening now. Like you mentioned that the, the Spanish flu, obviously that, that pertains to the current coronavirus epidemic. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, right. And, you know, it's crazy because I live in this town where, like, I live in a big town, and, but things can happen in this town, and you think, and you'll think, well, that changed this, right? Mm-hmm. Because of this, that changed. And if that hadn't changed, then this wouldn't have happened. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know. Um, well, Mark, it's been, it was a pleasure. Do you want to plug your podcast real fast? Sure. Or? You can find, uh, we're what if world history, um, what if world history.com is our website and you know, wherever you listen to, uh, your podcast, you can find us. Um, and you know, I really appreciate you having me on. I've, I've listened to your episodes and you really go deep and you really do a good job of kind of, uh, bringing history alive in, in a way that, explores all the different facets but makes it relatable so great job well i mean i think history is relatable and if you i mean you know there's there's a thing that i realized while i was researching the spanish flu which is that i'm alive because my great-grandmother knew that brunswick had the spanish flu right and so she kept her family out of brunswick right so there's no doubt in my mind that I'm alive because of that. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind that I'm alive because of that. Um, anyway, well, thank you, Mark. And uh, hang on the line for me so I, we can download this thing. Okay.